Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler, buddy. Hump day, hump day evening. How you doing, man? Hump day evening. I'm enjoying the fighting logger. There you go. Um, Throwing back a little bit of Hardywood's finest, or at least Hardywood's uh, Hardy finest Woods. hokey. Hardywood's <laughs> Hardy finest hokey. Throwing back a little beer. Relaxing. Grilled some pork chops tonight on the grill. Hey. Can't. Uh, th- big, thick old pork chops, man. You cannot beat with a nice little grill in action. You know, I've had two days of just like come get off work and do nothing. So there it's you been, go. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I, I've, I've been uh, soaking in the playoff baseball atmosphere. So that that's been. I have been doing that. Yeah, that that's been my go-to in the evening. Um, get a break it's been tonight. Nice. A little break tonight. Uh, Little break tonight. Congrats to the uh, the Bravos and the Sox. Absolutely. Moving on to the ALCS and NLCS, respectively. In years where I don't think anybody would have expected either of those teams to make it. I mean, for real. Like yeah. when you got when, when the injuries you guys had, and you know when when you tell say. Boston's gonna make it, but Chris Sale's gonna pitch a month of the season. People like people like, nah, y'all aren't gonna do it, but they made it. What it shows you though about baseball, as if every in every other sport, if you draft good players or get good young players and develop them, you will win games. Yep. And 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 that's what the Braves have done for the last few years. And if you start looking at the Sox, that's what it is there. You know, when they traded Mookie and got Verdugo and Kike, like, you knew they were good, solid players. And you knew between Devers and Bogarts and some of the kids in the pen and Evaldi, guys who had they developed in the system or yeah. traded when they were younger, it it, it it player development. That's what that's why the Braves and the Red Sox are in the uh, CS Championship Series. Yeah. And the Braves have such a, a good young core, and then two of those guys go down with season-ending injuries before the All-Star break. Exactly. And we completely patchworked that thing together before the trade deadline and just kept it moving. Well, y'all and, were under 500 at the beginning of August. Y'all went on a tear. Yeah, it, was, it was a big tear. It was a big tear. It was a huge tear. We, so, were, fl- we were flirting with, uh, with 500 pretty much from – May until August, and then we finally got over the hump. And once we were there, we more or less, you know, kind of handled business as as we closed it out. There um, had had like one or two series where we didn't didn't play well, but uh, more or less, we were able to, um, you know, take most of the series down the stretch. Uh, swept a couple in there, and uh, yeah. you know, swept 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 the big one at the end there to close it out against the Phillies. So yeah, and, and fifteen games over five hundred with as many injuries as you guys had is unbelievable, man. So we continue as we record. If you see the head move, you guys will know why, um, but not tonight. And you guys will find out what hundred burger team y'all play. And what's your preference, Dodgers or Giants? I think we match up better against the Giants. Yeah, I'd say <laughs> so. Even though revenge would be sweet. 
it, yep. revenge would be sweet. I think just in terms of matchups and, and, and overall <laughs> top to bottom. And I just think it's a, it's a better matchup for us, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Absolutely. <laughs> I, hey, I, I'd love nothing better to put it to the Dodgers. So it, it would be, it would be good either way for me. Either way, either way. So Brian watching a little Monday night football on Twitter, going back and forth, the John Gruden news breaks. Yep. Ooh, and every joke went, <laughs> what lasts longer, this game or John Gruden <laughs> getting fired or resigning? Uh, if you took the John Gruden resigning or getting fired, you were right. Um, you know, 10 years ago, company emails, some of the, the crap that was said, man, you just don't say that. It's just, it's just wrong. You, you don't say that full stop. You definitely don't say that in company emails that, you know, you don't say subject to shit like this, like. But but, but as as long as it was, and as much as you know, he you know, he he resigned. He didn't fight it, you know, and he he's getting you know, essentially washed away, which is one of those sad things because people can make mistakes, say things, and still change and et cetera, et cetera. But my piece is this. They're saying that they're they can't release any emails or find any emails on the Redskins investigation. I think yeah. that's bull. Yeah. I mean, you've got stuff coming out with uh, all that stuff that even Schefter was sending over yes. to to Bruce and like Bruce how, how is nothing else coming out? Like that's oh, it's there. Somebody's got it. Yeah, somebody's going to be dropping hammers because I can't wait. Think about that investigation. <laughs> That investigation ended. It was it was a point made on the radio here in Richmond. That investigation was concluded. Do you remember when it was concluded, Brian? Because the point that remember. was made is funny. It was made July 2nd. July 2nd. The weekend before July 4th. What happens normally Fridays before holidays in most corporate workplaces? Holidays. You, you leave early. Leave early. Right? You're going by lunch. Between lunch and two, everybody's out of the office. People are gone. What happened Monday? Everybody had the federal holiday because the fourth was on a Sunday. So they break that news then. People start talking about it Tuesday. But by Tuesday, it's like, who gives a crap? Yeah, whatever. And well, now- they, they, they took the Friday dump to like the complete. Oh, they took it to 10. Exponential level there. Unbelievable. So the question is, what additional comes out? And now you're having people who was involved in that, especially after Jay Gruden, who had been there for all those years, said, oh, yeah, I was never interviewed. Nobody ever talked to me. It's like, huh? So I think more is going to come out. And I tell you, whoever's got that info, you you get a feeling that they're going to start leaking it. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know a lot of Washington football team fans that would love nothing more than for Snyder to um, have to wave bye bye to this franchise. Oh uh, yeah, and, and it would it would be even more more just desserts considering some of the shit that was happening, especially around the early, or, or really around the the uh, the, the labor, yeah, well, yeah. The, the the labor situation. Yeah. Like they they were playing a lot of shenanigans at that point anyway. Absolutely. All right, Brian. Let me tell you what really grinds my gears about polls. What you got, man? Alabama, who's the number one team in the country, undefeated, went into Texas A&M 
Was Texas A&M undefeated, Brian? No, they were not. Were they even ranked in the top 25? No. Were they over 500? No. No, 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 no. But they lose if you didn't watch the end of that game after if you if you couldn't I could stomach it. Watch the end of the hockey game. Me and Brian jabbed a couple minutes, and then I watched the end of that. You would expect normally, if this was any other conference, any other team, how many spots would you have expected them to fall losing to a 500 team unranked, even though it was on the road? They'd at least drop to eight or higher. Well, they dropped to five. They dropped four spots. Yeah. They essentially gave them the same treatment that Penn State got. Penn State, who was four, who is now seven or eight, I've got to look back at the polls, who lost to the number three team by a field goal on the road Yep, as well. I I, I hate the polls. You you hate them at the beginning. I hate them for these reasons. When – Certain teams get favorable treatment if they lose a game. I mean, at this point, I don't know if that's if this is SEC bias or just Alabama bias that's that, that's coming into play here. It's some um, bias, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, and you know, I I get that Alabama on paper is still a probably Jump. one of the two best teams in the country. I get that, they but you got you still got to win the games. You don't you don't get to have favorable treatment just because. On paper, that's how it works because football isn't played on paper. You still got to go out and win the game. It's true. You sh- you shouldn't penalize other teams that are taking care of their business just because another team is top to bottom the best roster and they've got you know one of the best coaches of all time. Like you can't exactly. just you can't live off of that in the polls. It ha- it has to be you know week to week and what they actually do on the field. It needs to be concrete. It doesn't need to be whataboutisms or hypotheticals. Well, hypothetically, they're the best team. So, hypothetically, if they lost four games, would you still put them in the playoffs? The honest truth, there would be somebody on that committee that would say, well, you know, they only lost by a combined nine points in those four games. They're essentially giving them a mulligan because they know that at some point they're going to have to play Georgia, more than likely. Um, And... They're essentially giving them a mulligan and saying, okay, well, there's your mulligan. Um, you're going to have to play Georgia at some point. We'll figure this out at that point. It's true. And, it's which true. is bullshit. It's, it's bullshit. But, it you know, it is what it is. It's also one of those reasons why we still stand on our hill if we need a 12-team playoff. I mean, it's 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 the reason I die on the hill because if you're going to start saying that losses are irrelevant, then put more than two, four teams in there. Get yeah. more people a chance. And if you're saying losses are irrelevant, then you can potentially, if you're, you know, if your bread makers have a have a pseudo bad season for them, you know, ten wins, two losses, potentially three losses, they can still get in. So, um, yeah, and and some of this, I mean, say what say what you will, it goes back to the money thing, right? I mean, yes, it's it's a big deal to keep Alabama in in the in contention. It is. It is. They draw eyes. They're like Ohio State. They're like, you know, Oklahoma in, in a way. It's multiple teams that draw the eyes of the casual public. 
Yep. All right, Brian. Um, before we jump into hokey notes here, big, big news out of Miami. Derek King is done for the year, shoulder injury on top of essentially recovering ACL. So he's done. He will not be in Coral Gables, Miami Stadium, Hard Rock Cafe um, at the end of November versus us or against any other team. But he has he has contemplated coming back for his seventh season. Yep. Um, all right, on Sunday, hold on. On Sunday, you said as of right now, the only game you could see us winning without a shadow of a doubt was Duke. Does it change anything with them losing to Eric King, especially the way they looked a few weeks ago? I mean, I still put it probably in a toss-up category, but I think it's one that we are – it's it's a favorable one. Um, you know, at the beginning of the season, I probably had that as a probable loss. Um, I did. Seeing how they've looked um, in general, I, I, I was already kind of leaning towards full-on toss-up. Um, I'd probably put that in the toss up with us as being the slight favorite there now. Um, kind of in the same ballpark as maybe the uh, maybe Syracuse. the Georgia Tech matchup, maybe the Syracuse matchup. Um, kind of in that same ballpark at this point. Um, and, and and it's because Derek King kind of made that ship go right. Yeah. Uh, on at least on the offensive side of the ball, and their defense hasn't quite played to the level that we were expecting them to play this year. Um, and coupling that with not having Derek King on that offense, you know, we're starting to see things that we were talking about going into last year again, right? With that offensive yep. line and some yep. of the other struggles that they were having. So, well, their their defense was expected to be the reason they were so highly ranked, right? Yeah, like. They were returning so many guys. I mean, they lost some edge presence in Phillips and uh, Roche, but they still had a couple guys behind them. The defense looked has looked like, and I've watched parts of the Alabama, the App State. I watched part of the UVA. I, did, I missed the Michigan State game. That was they, the day they played that game was just bad time, and I couldn't see any of it. But it looked like that defense gets on the field, and their expectation is, oh, we're the Miami defense. And then they get pumped in the face, and it's like, so, like, what what does that matter to us? We don't care if you're the Miami defense. Yeah, and and with, without them having that elite pass rush this year, I mean, you're starting to see they've got elite players on the back end. But kind of remember the, the one of the big questions we asked before the season is, you know, are they going to be able to generate enough pressure for them to maximize yeah. the talent they have on the back end? And right now, cool. the answer's been no so far. Um, them losing, um, you know, tr- truly three uh, top top line edge rushers. I know one didn't play last year uh, for them, but yeah. losing three uh, pass rushers off that defense. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, all it of is. those guys are you know, NFL caliber players. Well, all of them are on roster right now. Yeah, I mean, all three of them. So exactly. So you know that that that's that's been a big deal for them, and they haven't really found a footing where they can, you know, put four quarters together on, on either side of the ball. And and some of that goes back to Derek King's injury. And some of that goes back to that defense, just not being what it was last year. Exactly. And um, the honest truth is for Manny Diaz, obviously we've, the stories are coming out about the president of the university doesn't care about football. The AD does. We, we discussed it amongst ourselves, other people, 
they have the boosters to keep their program afloat and being fine, regardless if the school says they're not trying to give them anything. But at what point this year does does a call or is a call made like he's gone? Go find someone else. Man, he's gone. Yeah, and I think because, you know, there, there's two things at play here. So, number one, you know, they don't necessarily have the support from the university at, at large. But also because of that, they are, and because they're a private institution, they are primarily, um, you know, so much of the funds that, that are coming in have always been that of, of the private nature. So they can make moves like that on, on that side without necessarily having to seek the budgetarial approval <laughs> of the, uh, of the university in the same way that a public institution would. So, um, I, I could see them going after Manny Diaz. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that what he's dealing with this year is completely falling at his feet, but it's, it's another example of you can't keep stacking decent, uh, recruiting classes, you can't be a team in Florida and and continue to put out a mediocre product every year. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Brian, let's flip it over to the Hokie notes. We'll go to the press conference, a little bit of things said by Coach Fuente. But let's start with this. Me and, me and Brian got together and watched this for a few minutes. Or we, we watched the whole thing. Yeah, it was what, a solid um, 30, 35 minutes. 35 minutes. Like we watched yeah. it. And the first two minutes we're watching it, and was it me or you? Like, Paul. I was like, he's he's cracking his knuckles and playing with his wedding ring. He does not want to be up there. His body language <laughs> for the majority of that press conference, with the exception of what we're going to talk about at the end with the targeting, he was uncomfortable. It looked terrible. Um, you know, he even had a few clips with Mike Nazolik. You know, I know you got to ask it. Well, you know, it, at least act. You don't have to say that. Like. He looks so bad up there, and you know it's it's a it's kind of a good self portrait to say, well, this is where we are. You know, yeah. it's a lot of uncomfortableness. It's a lot of cracking knuckles. It's playing with wedding rings. And for any of you guys who are married, you know the you know, I do it watching games. You know, movies that I haven't seen that are suspenseful. I'm playing with my ring. It's it's just a common thing. So um, as soon as you saw that, it was like, he ain't in the best headspace as of this moment. Yeah, I mean, just looked like he was, yeah, fidgeting a lot. And I think it was just, I, I'd like to be other places than here. Um, <laughs> and and I, I, can, I can understand that. I mean, yeah. it's, and, you know, I think one of the things that, I mean, we can, we can start out, I know he didn't get to this right away, but you know when we talk about the the decisions to go for two and not to go yeah. for two, you know he uh, he definitely took some ownership of, of that choice, even though he said you know from a his his, his he said his uh, way of going about those things is probably more traditional than. Uh, what the uh, statisticians uh, would, yeah. would probably advise. Um, yeah. And the thing was, you know, if you go by the book, the book said you don't go to go for two when we went for two. 
and then if you went for two there, you go for two again when you score again later. <laughs> the uh, later, right? <laughs> yeah, you go for two in, in either spot because if you get both, well, if you get one, not the other, um, essentially you're up more than eight, and it's a two score game, and again. Yeah. Well, eight doesn't necessarily help you. I mean, eight does force a, a you have to get a two, but at, the other team has to get a two. But at the same time, if you're up seven, they're not going for two unless, you know, they're completely nope. Nope. going full on. But what it does, you, there. you said it aloud to me after he talked about it. What it does is if you get that two and you get to nine, one way or the other, especially after we were up seven and can go up eight, you go for two is you sit there and say, if we go for two here and we get to nine, even if they go score and they get the two point conversion, which they don't have to take that, they'll probably still just kick the one. They'll probably kick it. But at that point in time, you can essentially run the ball three times, even though they didn't use their timeouts. You still force a timeout. You, you get you get rid of their timeouts unless they're going to hold them. Well, well it's a different set of play calls, right? It's a different set of play calls. You're not oh, trying oh. to move the ball in the field goal range. You're trying to run out the clock. You're like that, that's a clock. completely separate part of the play sheet that you're looking at. And, and the other piece, me and you talked about this, how they attacked going downfield to get the field goal, middle of the field. Why? Yep. He had three timeouts in his back pocket. If somebody got tackled short, burn it. By attacking it, if if we had we're up, if we had been up nine and we run and we run and we run and we only take like twelve seconds off the clock, they burn all three of their timeouts. Well, now playing in the middle of the field is risque. It's risky. You get tackled yeah. short. Even if you get tackled and get the guy in the game, if you send somebody way downfield, we talked about it Sunday. Well, now you got to bring everybody back up and the clock's kicking, kicking, kicking. So more or less, you're going to have to go outside the numbers. And it makes it more difficult to move downfield. But we, well, It we makes it more difficult to move downfield, and it, it plays to the strengths of our secondary as well. Yep. They're throwing into the meat of what of what our secondary is versus into the the middle of the defense where we're probably that's probably the weaker area of our defense is in the middle, right? So oh yeah, it's absolutely in the it, it it changes the dynamic of of both the uh, of that last drive for them and and, and our last drive. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, well, let's let's talk about this though. Just something he did talk about. He talked about execution. And we'd heard it before, and you just kind of went into a rant. You, you, I didn't have to ask you to pause it. You paused it and went. Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the big thing that I always harp on is that one off games execution can be placed at the feet of players. Players don't always go out and have a, have have the best games in terms of execution. Habitual acts of execution errors are 100% on the coaching staff. If you are consistently going out there and not executing, you've done one of three things wrong. Either you didn't recruit the right players or you didn't prepare them or there is something going on in your scheme and you're not putting them in a, in a good position to make those plays. Yeah. And over this time, as many times as we've heard execution, 
it's finally it's like it's on y'all. Don't 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 try to put it on the players. It's on you. Um, you should take the ownership for it. Um, now, I, I, can I say this, Brian? Would would you be more accepting of execution type stuff if things had been changed? Yes, only because you're at that point. We'd be talking about a new system, right? We'd be talking about still kind of playing into things potentially not having the right personnel on campus to run things the way you want to. And that's that's thinking of bringing in a new offensive coordinator, not Fuente taking over the play calling. Yeah, that's not that. If Fuente that, was taking over the play calling, then th- those excuses would go out the window. So they would go out the window. But it's that whole piece is why do you see guys when they head into a four- or five-year deal? And this is in all lines of football. You see them, if things aren't clicking pretty quick, especially year three and four, that's when all right, you've got to go. You have to leave. We aren't executing. Like, I can – again, you made the point. I, we can deal with game errors here and there. Consistently unexecuting is not good at all. So – yep. And he had the chance. He's had the chance multiple times. He didn't do it. So, again, everything is continuously falling on him. Um, You know – I told you a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll still throw Brad when he's got to go under the bus. I'll throw him, but it's all for one thing now. It's all on him. So he's got to yeah. make those decisions, and he, he's he's made the bed at this point, right? Like he's made it. Yeah. At at this point, Corn is who he is. Um, there's no going back nope. on that. Um, we're we're we just have to deal with the consequences of that, and those consequences fall back at Fuente. Um, we did get some other news though, so. Yeah, um, you know, we were talking about Braxton Burmeister and whether he'd be available, and uh, it turns out he's been a hundred percent full go at practice this week. So full go, that's a surprise. Felt, said he felt good in the interview today. So I, I'm going to assume Brian probably probably nothing muscle wise, probably no separated shoulder, probably not even a deep bruise. Stinger, maybe bone bruise would be the, the most severe. Um, you know, we'll never know because yeah. they don't talk about it. <laughs> when we have BB on here in six months, we'll we'll find out exactly the story. We'll we want to try <laughs> Mark your calendars, guys. Mark your calendars. Uh, we did um, find out that uh, Connor um, Blumrick is at least going to be, be out for a while. Um, he did leave open the opportunity for him to potentially return. Uh, towards the end of the season, but depending on what that injury was, he did say it was a leg injury. Um, that doesn't look good for him. Um, no. I'm, I'm guessing it, it, it potentially could have been like a bad sprain versus some sort of yeah. actual tear in the knee because it looked like it was a knee, the knee area. So, um, yeah. could could be some sort of MCL sprain or something like that. Those are usually like six to eight week injuries. Yeah, something something significant. Um, a, a severe sprain of those would definitely, even an LCL, they'd be out for quite some time. Usually it's the MCL. What really sucks is the way they used him Saturday, say what you will, you know, the incorrect uses of him were terrible. When they used him correctly multiple times, it was an addition to the offense that was helpful. And, yeah, and we never, it never really got to truly see what, Connor, the H back with Braxton on the field could have looked like too, because that could have, 
that could have created some interesting matchups against a defense. So I, I was a little sad we didn't get to see that as well. So uh, we'll see how that continues forward. Um, I guess the other thing we talked about, uh, well, Fende talked about was um, Dax uh, with the uh, targeting penalty going to be out the first half of Pitt this week um, yep. as a result of it being in the second half, obviously towards the end of the game in this case. Um, so looks like Dean and Keyshawn are going to get um good amount of play this week. Yeah. Uh, look for look for probably Keyshawn to get get a good amount of play. Although I, you know, I'll talk about it a little bit now. This is a great opportunity to especially with the way Pitt likes to play essentially riding that true nickel for the majority of the game. <laughs> yeah, like we probably should have did in that last series <laughs> versus Notre Dame or the last two series when they had a pass, but Jahan, we love you, but you made a bad mistake. Don't keep doing it. Um, Keyshawn, they said, it has been getting the primary ones this week. Um, Keyshawn has been with the system a little longer than Dean. He's a little bit older, a little more experienced. Um, And, you know, it's still tough because middle linebacker, whether coming in cold or with a week of prep, has to make all the calls, has to put everybody in position. Um, and that's sort of the that's the part that we missed the most on Dax, even in those last few drives. You know, was getting people lined up right. You know, the middle pass that was the big gainer. You know, argue all you want up and down that could Dax have covered a wide receiver. Well, if Dax is in the game, I don't think they call that play. I don't because if the way I saw it is if you saw the Tisdale play. Ferguson was hesitant to come up and help clean up that mess. And then the very next play they attacked him. Yep. So, you know, and I, and I think, you know, it's more of a, you know, you smell blood in the water type thing than it was yeah. necessarily Dax is a, you know, head and shoulders above Dean Better in terms player. of coverage. Like it, that's not what I'm talking about here, but you got a cold player coming off the bench. Mm-hmm. Most most coordinators attack the cold player because oh. regardless of their ability, uh, they might be playing either too hesitant or too loose, and you can take advantage of that. It's 100%, man. All right, Brian, the targeting call, it was one of those highly questionable calls. Actually, both targeting was Saturday night. and Yeah, even the, even the one that worked in our favor, and granted, I think the, the time it happened and the player it happened to definitely – hurt us a whole lot more than it hurt Notre Dame. Um, but it did, it did, it did. Both of them were, were questionable in terms of malice. Yes. Le- letter, letter of the law. Those were targeting penalties. Yes. Um, but it, it, neither of them were forceful or intentional contact no. to the head and neck area. No, it wasn't. And it's, and it's something that I told you, Brian, not long after it happened, Something like this needs to happen to the right team and on the right stage against the right opponent. Th- that's how the change is going to happen. That's how it's yeah. going to happen. It's got. It's going to be, to me, and when I say right opponent, let's say this year in the playoffs, Georgia plays Michigan or, you know, someone else. Yeah. And it's a tight game late and it's – Third and it's second and goal. The guy's going to the corner. The guy does a good football play, but it's target and he's out. Top linebacker. 
The other team punches in and beats Georgia. Georgia's not in the final. That's when things will happen. But during the conversation with Fuente, he made, you know, he made the point about how coaches and stuff had been discussing that there should be a targeting one and a targeting two, much like the flagrant one and flagrant two in basketball. And in and, and listening to that, he got very comfortable. The body language yep. changed when he was talking that. He got very comfortable in it. And he made some really great points. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually 100% with this because oh, me too. I have no problem with any any sort of contact to the head neck area, flag it. That's fine. Yes. You know, cuz you you still want to try to keep that out of the game as much as you can. But penalizing a player that is not purposefully and forcefully uh initiating that contact, it needs to just stick with the flagrant one keep that player in the game or even if you're going to do essentially you get a flagrant two or two flagrant ones in a game equals a flagrant two yes that's the way it should be that's the way it honestly should be um you know Fuente said he felt like they've talked to this at afca afca coaches with officials and it's just they like feel like it just goes into space and he made the, the best point he made whether you love or hate the guy it's all your decision he says the reason it's not happening so quick is nobody wants to be seen as going backwards against player safety. And and that's the thing that you have to essentially sell to the officials and the presidents of it's not going backwards. It's staying status quo, yeah. but it's actually not being negative towards just an incidental play. And yeah, and you're not you're not just hurting a team either. You know, you're you're hurting a player's stock. I mean, there's a lot of things that that you're hurting here, especially if you know that player is playing on a big stage at a big big moment, and yeah. all of a sudden, like if if a player is 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 pushing for you know borderline first line draft first round draft status, and they're playing in a college football playoff, and they're gone the fifth play of the game. I mean that that's high quality game tape that now they don't have they can't put yeah. on their resume is at the next level. Um, that's a big deal, and if that yes. ends up costing their team a game, they don't get a chance to put that out there for the next game. So um, there, there's real world ramifications for the player itself, not just the team. And it looks like that the main punishment here is that they want to okay, well the team gets punished for a player's choices here and this that and the third and you know. We, we we want players to be safe and play the game as safely as possible, but at the same time, and, and this was kind of emphasized, and I, this has always been my, my thought on anything, is that, you know, doing the right thing is always better than doing, you know, whatever the flavor of the week is. And that's the flavor of the week now is the targeting injection. And, you know, I, I want it to change quicker than anyone because, you know, can we just say it? Just say it. That penalty has cost two games against Notre Dame. Two games. Yeah. If Waller's playing in 19, I don't think they drive the field on that last drive and win. And, I, and I'll say this. If Dax is on the field for that entire drive, I think what happens is probably it's not as a quick a drive as it was. Because, A, they gained 40 yards – 15 off Dax's penalty and 40 off attacking Ferguson. They were at the 35-yard line 
or 30 yard line when that play happened. Yeah. You, you do the math that gets them to the 45. You take the 25 yard, they're in red zone pretty quick because of that one play. And again, I think if it's a vice versa play and it affects Notre Dame, maybe this was the time it happened. Yeah. So, um, but, hey guys, what we're not saying is that that necessarily you know resulted in Notre Dame winning the game, but it certainly was one of the factors that played a role in that. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so before we uh, get into knowing the enemy, the Pit Panthers, we are going to take a quick pause for a message from our digital partners. As we take a quick break, we'd like to tell you about getting your free website report from our digital partner, Grassroots Digital Marketing Studio. They'll tell you how your website ranks on Google, on-site SEO, and social media. No commitment to buy anything. You can get your free report by visiting grassrootsdigitalstudio.com forward slash free dash website dash report. Now back to the episode. All right, so let's look at the Pitt Panthers offense, Brian, to start out with. First of all, something I thought I'd never see, Pitt Panthers leading the country in scoring at 52 points a game. Um, fourth in total offense at, uh, you know, 455 yards a game, really good red zone offense, you know, scored 25 touchdowns out of 32 trips down there. Again, another highly ranked. And if I told you all that, and I told you the first thing on this is the quarterback has had the same offensive coordinator for three seasons. Same people teaching the things for three seasons, and it's making Kenny effing Pickett a potential Heisman contender, Brian. The three-star, you know, it's just – it's, yeah, it's <laughs> 1,730 yards, 19 touchdowns, one pick, 72 – The not only the best numbers of his career – I mean, it's just – it's leaps and bounds above it. And I know in reality he really should be on an NFL roster right now because his last year should have been his last year last year. Say that five times fast. But he's here, Brian. What what What's changing his game from even last year when he did okay? Uh, the big thing that I'm seeing is that it looks like the talent around him has really come into their own a little bit more. And he's doing a really good job of distributing the ball to a lot of different players in that offense and going through his progressions a little bit quicker than he's gone through them in his, um, in his history so far. So it looks like he's working through his progressions a lot faster, getting the ball to the, the open man within the, the, the framework of the play a lot better than he has in previous years. I mean, and we've seen, I mean, obviously everyone listening to this knows who Kenny F and Pickett is. Um, and yes, we always say F and or fucking, I mean, that it's literally, it's what it, we, it, we, we, we don't really not, not necessarily the animosity isn't so much directed at him, but the fact that he's the quarterback for Pitt and Narduzzi and the whole shebang, he's Kenny fucking Pickett. Um, but I mean, we, we, we know what he brings to the table. He's a, he's got good athleticism, um, for, for, a, a you know, primary throw first quarterback, yeah. um, probably even a little bit of a step up, even from Sam Howell at the athleticism, um, standpoint, uh, 
does a really good job on those rollouts. He he keeps his eyes downfield, but he knows he has a really good feel of when he needs to kind of turn it up field and just get what he can. And like I said, he's been delivering uh, the ball to a lot of different receivers, and that's really kind of meant that you can't key on specific players down by down as much. And I think that's really helped him kind of move forward. All right, let, let me ask this, Brian. You talked about he's going through his progressions quicker. Being with the same OC, same system, same guy, how easy is that for an OC to come in here and start taking things out of the playbook and say, essentially start changing the 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 um the the wide receiver chart? Like, okay, we're not running this in this combo anymore. Kenny can't read it, but he can read this and this great. He can read a smash, you know, smash hook route. Great. We're going to throw that in this set. So it's been the same guy in his ear the whole time. Probably same plays, same concepts, same looks, not rotating cast characters. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned there a little bit. So one thing, the coordinator has a good feel what Kenny is comfortable with in terms of uh, route combinations. Kenny's gotten more more uh, comfortable overall with all of them. And because he is a veteran quarterback at this point, what he is working on in the offseason is all up here and timing. That's it. He knows the system, right? Yeah. He doesn't have to work on that. He's working on this, how to get through it faster, and the timing with those receivers. And the other thing that he's benefiting from is that most of these guys are coming back from last year. Oh, absolutely. Guys he's throwing to. Yeah. So and- he already had some comfort with them. He's working on more comfort, and it's just looked a lot smoother this year. All right, well, let's talk about those guys. Let's talk about Tasir Mack, um, a two-star when he came out, went to Indiana at first, transferred in December of 17 over over to Pitt. So, essentially, he's been there three. This is his fourth season with Pickett. 6'2", 190. Interesting place. He played high school football, played in BKNY, played at Brooklyn. Um, hey. so, yeah, you don't see many guys at a D1 level. Where Brooklyn, Brooklyn at? Yeah. <laughs> 16 catches for 304 yards for two touchdowns, averaging, you know, 19 per reception. And I tell you, Brian, his he's had two 100-plus games, and in both those games, he was at right at 25 yards per reception. So I, I got a feeling you're about to say speed. Yeah, he's got he's got good speed. He's he's their deep threat. They also run him a, a lot on those uh, kind of deep comeback routes where he can catch the ball and kind of turn up field and then use that athleticism in the open field. Um, and they throw also a lot of fades and uh, digs over the middle of the field where he can really kind of plant his foot, turn, and then kind of use that acceleration across the field to get open and uh, make some big plays. Saw him do a couple of uh, those cross-country routes as well. So... Um, he's the guy that's going to get the, the, the consistent big plays, um, in the offense. Um, but he is, he, he will occasionally, you know, just be a guy that moves the sticks for him. Like I said, they do run those, um, you know, digs and comebacks. Um, so look for him to probably be the guy that, that, that they're going to take some shots with. All right. So the next guy is the guy that's really been lighting it up stat wise. Jordan Addison already 29 receptions, 524 yards. Three 100-yard games, his last three games. Six foot, 175. He was a four-star athlete. Um, and the consistency when he came out for 247, he's probably going to go play defensive back of some type. And uh, he's a top 150 player. He was the 
number four athlete in his class. So this guy, obviously athletic as hell, um, nine touchdowns, averaging 18 yards per reception with 29-524. It seems like I look at those numbers, that, and especially three 100-yard games already this early in the season, back-to-back-to-back. He's probably not a one-trick pony. Uh, no, he's kind of the do-it-all weapon on the offense. Um, they run him on sw- uh, screens, swings, uh, slants. I mean, he's he's got the the full complement of the route tree is available to this guy, and they take advantage of it with him. Um, he's a little bit more elusive than fast compared to Mac. Um, he kind of has that, that shiftiness. Um, they line him up in different places all over the field and because of his route running ability and ability to really kind of do everything in that offense. Um, so he's the, he's the weapon that you really have to keep your eye on because he will bust a big play on you, but he's also a good stick mover and kind of the guy that, that Pickett will look for when he's in trouble. All right. So Mac and Addison look for them on the outside. And Brian, are they do they X Y or they or does Whipple move these guys all around? Uh Mac is gonna primarily be outside. Um Addison will will line up all over the offensive formation. All right, all right. Now they have another weapon as well. Um Lucas Kroll. What a journey for this guy. Started out at Arkansas when he came out in twenty sixteen, then went to a JUCO. Juco came out as a top four player, the top tight end. Then he went to Florida. Then he finally transferred to Pitt. 6'6", 260, a prototypical – that's an NFL tight end body. He has the size and the height. Um, 15 receptions so far this year. 193 yards and 12.9 per receptions. He scored touchdowns in four or five games. Um. I'm assuming he is your traditional inline guy. Yeah, he's kind of the quintessential inline stick mover um, guy that uses his size well to, to create a target for Kenny Pickett on those key downs. Um, he doesn't do anything flashy, uh, but he will um, kind of be the outlet receiver in a lot of routes. They'll sometimes work him as the primary on like a third and short. Uh, and occasionally, I think they threw uh, one gadget play to him where they had a wide receiver um, throw throw a uh, kind of a fake screen uh, touchdown to him uh, against. I think it was Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, when I went back and watched the tape. So, okay. um, you know, kind of kind of the uh, the traditional mold there. Nothing that is you know you wouldn't classify him as a joker or. or anything like that he is a typical inline guy that you know has has the hands to um you know be a threat in the receiving game yeah um and obviously scoring uh you know touchdowns in four or five games they obviously aren't afraid to utilize him down in the red zone um and i just think about a guy that size i mean we have no one that can match up with that now hopefully his speed and stuff we make up for it all right, Brian, let's flip. Let's look at the offensive line. And as much as been talked about, we've talked about the passing. Yep. Um, they don't have one set really running back between Davis, Abinanakand, if I pronounced that right, and Rodney Hamden Jr. They all have roughly the same numbers, give or take. Hammond Jr. hadn't played in as many games. 
But overall, the rushing offense is it's not terrible. It's it's about it's literally middle of the country at 165 a game. They're 65th in the nation. Um, and the line hasn't given up too much. Only 24 tackles for loss, only eight sacks. Um, probably more impressive with the sacks is it's only it's under 60 yards. So it's not like it's, you know, they're giving up 10 or 12 yards per sack. Um, or even in the uh even in the tackle for loss game, it's only 198 yards. So yeah. overall, their offensive line it looks pretty good. Yeah, and a little bit of the running game is a mirage, though, um, because oh, Kenny Pick Kenny Pickett is getting a good number of those yards. Okay. Um, so when you look when you look at Kenny Pickett um, in, in terms of the running game. He's getting a, a good amount on scrambles. He's getting a good amount on some some design runs. Um, so so that is skewing the numbers a little bit. When they just line up and hand the ball off to a running back, they do a great job of not getting caught behind the line. So this isn't a Notre Dame situation, but they're not they're not out there gashing you in the run game. It's it's very much in support of the passing attack. They run the ball. They want to be effective enough in the running game, so you have to honor it, so they can throw the ball like they want to. Yeah, and you're right, Brian Pickett. I'm just pulling up the data here. He is getting about 25 or 26 yards a game, only about under four a carry. But take him out, that's down to 140. That's significantly falling down. So I'm glad you made that point. But what else are we seeing from them? What about pass pro? Uh, so pass, like I said, they like to set up the set up the run um, with the pass. Um, they do a good job of protecting Kenny Pickett, um, especially with it's just like a four man pressure. Um, they also do a good job in blitz pickup, um, but when that is like a delay uh, delay blitz, um, that's when you can kind of uh, catch them napping a little bit. If they see it coming, they do a really good job. They they diagnose it and they get where they need to be they don't know where the pressure's coming from pre-snap all bets are off a little bit and that's when you can finally get to kenny pickett because he is hard to sack because of how well they are up front at at, at picking up um the the four-man rush and the and the 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 pre-snap uh blitz show all right well, Brian, um, before we get into a little data point to players here, uh, what sort of defense are we going to see Saturday with uh, Narduzzi? Uh, it's a familiar defense, buddy. We got a, we got a four-two-five coming in the house. <laughs> not, not a shock there. Um, and so far, I, I'm doing a little a little thing here for these stats I'm about to give you. I took out their game against New Hampshire defensively because it skewed it a little bit and their scoring defense you take out that game they're giving up about 26 and a half a game which is in the mid 70s as far as scoring defenses go yep you're giving up about 383 yards a game which is again mid 70s and i'm gonna get you some data after brian goes through these we go through these players here that we've kind of taken a look at and, and it's going to be just a little – you're going to raise your eyebrows and say, how can you be here if you take out one game and you're here if you add them all? It's, it's skews. But, Brian, let's talk about defensive line first. You know, you've got the big clogger in the middle in Keyshawn Camp, 6'4", 290. 
You've got Baldonado with three and a half sacks coming off the edge, 6'5", 260. And, that, and that's who I kind of was saying to you, I, I, what about these guys, Brian? And you said, nope, there's one guy you need to look up, Curtis. Kalasia Cansey, six foot, 275, D tackle, three star, 10 tackles, two sacks, three for loss, three tackles for loss this year. What is the tape saying? Because the stats don't jump out. The body type doesn't jump out, Brian. But what is Cansey doing on tape that is making this pit, making him kind of the key on that D line? Uh, I'm not going to make this comparison lightly, but it's like shades of Aaron Donald in terms of the way he has a motor inside um, the tackles. Um, Yeah, he doesn't jump off the screen in the same way that Aaron Donald does, obviously. So, again, this is a comparison not saying he is that player. Uh, that caliber player, but the, the the way he plays inside the tackles is impressive. He impacts the game even when he is not making the play. Um, he is blowing up the line of scrimmage, impacting the angle of the running back, impacting what the offensive line is doing as a unit. Um, he kind of makes the whole defense go and makes the job of the other deep members of the defensive line and the linebackers defending the run that much easier. All right, so shades of Aaron Donald. Um, and <laughs> I, you know, I, I, just when, I, when you think, when you look at the body type, when you look at at, at the impact, it, it 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 that's that that was the first thing that jumped off to me. Um, like I said, I don't think we're we're looking at that caliber player, but in terms of how how he impacts the game, that that's the type of player you're looking at. It's essentially his job is similar to Donald's. And it's probably why you're seeing Baldonado have sacks and Cam, uh, Keyshawn Camp have some sacks as well because of if he's eating that space and he's getting in gaps, essentially there, there's nowhere to go there with him doing yep. that. He's a star, but he doesn't have to eat to, to be the star. All right. Makes sense. All right. Let's take a look at the next guy. Let's take a look at John Petirshan. Um, 6'1", so far this year, 22 tackles and an interception, a couple sacks and four tackles for loss. Seventh year, Brian. Yes. <laughs> We're going to say that. We've said that quite a few times this year. Um, he was a three-star who actually originally committed to Penn State, originally from Pittsburgh, transferred back to Pittsburgh as a transfer. Um, and I think you're about to say a familiar position for us. Yeah, this is a whip um, and probably more more of a traditional whip than what we have Jamari Connor playing now. Um, it's it's more of it's more true true hybrid um, versus kind of the uh, the nickel that 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 Jamari plays uh, on a regular basis. Um, he does a this you know he's very it's a very sound player. Uh, he does a great job with backside run contained from that position. Um, they blitz him a lot as well. He gets some impact in there, uh, especially on run blitzes. So he's not necessarily a guy that they're bringing after the quarterback a whole ton, um, but he blew up uh, a big goal line play against Tennessee coming off the edge hard. Um, so he'll they'll, they'll bring him a lot in run blitz situations where he can really impact the edge of the defense. And just a solid overall player that, you know, kind of just – wears you down a little bit so nothing flashy but just somebody to keep an eye on 
All right, nothing flashy, but if he's a guy doing his job, hurts us even more. Um, now, what about this next guy, Brian? Um, Brandon Hill looks like a safety, 5'11", 195. Um, leads a team in tackles with 28. Also has a pick in there. Was a three-star when he came out. Um, what are we seeing from this guy to have so many tackles at the secondary position? Yeah, he's he's kind of the cleaner. Um, he's He's that – classic safety that's coming up there and filling on running plays he is patrolling the middle um kind of that uh that rover position for us um very similar to similar to that he he kind of rolls in the, to the middle to the back of the defense plays really good in uh zone coverage um they, they like to drop him inside the box in zone coverage and he'll uh he'll make some noise there very sure tackler um, big hitter in the secondary. He'll uh, he'll he'll lay you out um, if you come across the middle. And like I said, great in zone coverage. He can be beat when he is in a man situation. So that's one area we could potentially take advantage of there. Uh, but he's also the one that picked off uh, Hendon Hooker against t- uh, Tennessee to kind of close that game out there. All right. So again, not only a guy that can obviously clean up the run, not afraid to stick his head in there, but. We have to keep an eye out for him intercepting passes. Wonderful. All right. I remember this name from last year, Brian. Servicia Dennis, one of the inside linebackers there. We talked about him last year. You know, he's he's six one, two thirty, was a two star when he came out, twenty seven tackles, two for loss and a sack. Um what do you think about him, Brian? Yeah, he's kind of the guy in the middle of the defense that kind of makes them go and, and, and allows that first level of their defense to be so strong along with that defensive line. Um, he's he's kind of eating up anything that, that gets through that, that defensive line there. Does a good job running sideline to sideline um, and, and a good job of preventing any runs up the middle from getting to the second level. And when he does blitz, um, makes makes a lot, makes the quarterback rush their throws a lot, uh, We'll work in some delay blitzes and things like that uh, on a regular basis. So he's he's a guy that we're gonna have to watch out for not only you know when we run the ball trying to get past him up to the second level, but also um, you know make sure that he doesn't get to Braxton. Absolutely. All right. So about eight minutes ago when we started this segment, I gave y'all some adjusted numbers. I didn't adjust these numbers, and it kind of paints a picture as a team who's on the back half of a defense and a team that's elite. So I look at all five of their games, Brian, and third down conversion rate, they are a top 10 conversion rate, giving up less than 27% converting when you have all five of their games. Now, the other one, maybe not as much a difference, but showing they're really good in the red zone. They're ninth in the country in the red zone when looking at all five of their games. And I wanted to do this because when you take out that big skew game and you look at more of just the power five opponents, and you can do this for us as well, and it'll skew our defensive numbers without a doubt. But when I see a team from going in the top 10, top 15, to being down in the 70s, I feel like maybe their defense is a little bit of a mirage. They they have their issues that because they played one really bad team, the numbers are saying they're a lot better than actually what they are. Yeah, and they're not they're not great on the outside. We can we should be able to beat them outside 
um, with our receivers. Um, so that that's one thing to look for is that they are they're a good defense, but they're not an elite defense in my mind. They're 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 probably closer to you know if you put the you put the numbers in there over the course of a full season, you're probably looking at a defense in the you know forties or fifties, not kind of where they're ranking um, yeah. right now with that outlier game in place. So. You know, we'll, we'll, we will see. I know we're about to talk about what the Hokies are going to have to do here to to kind of counter what they bring to the table. So, and we absolutely have to talk about it. It's the Zeta version. We've we've continued to move on, and um, we're going to look at the defense first, Brian, because when a team coming is coming in scoring this much, moving the ball at will, having some weaknesses, but not having a significant weakness. Like we felt Notre Dame had problems with the offensive line. We saw it rear its head early. We put Muckner in. It changed the dynamic. But I think what we're going to start with here is, although he has some athleticism, there is no way Kenny Pickett is going to run as much as Buckner did or successful or having our defensive end chase him. So we are coming out and saying, we got to put Kenny fucking Pickett on his fucking ass a minimum of 10 times hitting him. Yep. Minimum. Got to hit him 10 times. I'd like to see at least four sacks. Um, that that would be a good number to start with. Uh, it, like I said, it's hard to get to him. Um, we we got to – Jay Ham's going to have to dial up something a little creative, and hopefully early on we can at least get some pressure with four and then kind of mix up some of the blitzes as we go along there to uh, when they start to adjust to that. All right, so put Kenny down. Now the next one, we've talked about the run game. Brian brought up the point that Pickett is part of that run game, but they're still getting 140 yards from a couple guys, which is still not too terrible, especially the way they're passing the ball. And I I I know we didn't put a number on this, Brian. If they run the ball 30 times, they can't crack 110. We have to keep it in that mid three. If if they're averaging four carry, it's going to get ugly. Yeah, because if they're able to complement their pass attack with a rushing attack that can get them in short, uh, you know, second and manageable, third and manageable situations, that's going to let Kenny Pickett really have his option of who to throw to. We need to keep them behind the sticks, and you know we want to make them as one dimensional as possible. Um, I know their strength is throwing the ball around, but if we can take away the run, that strength becomes a little bit less. So um, that's going to be the goal is to make sure we contain that rushing attack and make Kenny Pickett have to beat us. Yeah, and and that's what we're looking for. You know, by having that semblance of a rushing attack, you know, Pickett's averaging about 12 an attempt. If, if they keep the Russian attack, it's definitely going to be 12, maybe even more the way things have looked the last few weeks. But if you can tell me that he's at like between eight and nine, uh, and that's only somebody says that's only three yards, but when you throw it as much as they've thrown it this year, you know, where they're throwing it close to 35 times a game, that's yep. 100 yards. Also, the the more we can put them in situations where they're passing on obvious passing downs. 
Oh yeah. That means we can, we can come at them. We can make play calls that are specific for that type of play. Um, and that's why it's important to get behind, get, keep them behind the sticks. If yeah. we get them in, you know, second and 10, second and eight, if we can do that consistently, they're going to have to start throwing the ball on those downs that we're going to be able to adjust accordingly and either bring some sort of uh, blitz in, or we can definitely pin our ears back a little bit more than we would if we were in like a second and five, second and four situation. Absolutely. Another one, Brian, you put this on here. And after talking about Mac, reading about Mac, reading about Addison, we, we've got to tackle. I, I don't think we can afford to tackle like we did last week um, because I think these guys, because they're it's more receivers than running backs, they have potential to go big play. Yeah, yeah. If, if we don't wrap them up um, and they get into space, they've got the speed to, to, to turn it into a home run. So limit the run after the catch, and that means tackling. Um, we can't see what we saw especially in the red zone last week against Notre Dame, having three tackles on a, on a single three missed tackles on a single play, mm-hmm. got to wrap up, got to get guys to the dirt. Um, if we can do that, then we at least limit the, um, the, the big play potential of, of that offense. Yep. All right. The last piece here, Brian, I've, I've been talking to you about it. We are literally the worst team in the country in the red zone. Um, if you get in the red zone against us, you score touchdowns, um, you score touchdowns eight out of three times, eight out of 11 times. So 70% of the time you're getting it in. We haven't stopped anybody because teams are 11. We haven't even blocked a field goal or stopped field goals. This is, if it doesn't change this week, I mean, you know, there's no chance. Yeah, I think that's the that's the big thing is that we we our defense has sh- shown such significant Im- improvement that it's sad that we're seeing that one statistic be so glaring right now. Yes, it is. It seems like as soon as they get in the red zone, we forget how to tackle, forget how to cover, um, and it, it's getting a little a little silly. Um, and I'm not so much concerned about you know getting turnovers here, blocking kicks. I just want you, if you just flip or, or, or bring that, bring that uh, touchdown to field goal ratio, at least closer to that 50% mark, uh, if not better, that I'd be fine with that. Oh, um, I think if, if you told me we were, you know, five touchdowns, six field goals or, or six touchdowns, five field goals, I'd feel okay oh, about it, but yes. we're about, we're about three touchdowns worse than we should be. Uh, we got to we got to force them to kick three more often when they get in the scoring area. Well, if it was flipped completely, Brian, and it was eight field goals, three touchdowns, I'd be celebrating that number. Yeah, like, yeah. It, when you get down here, cool, you're going to score on us about twenty percent of the time for touchdowns. Every other time, you're going to be kicking three. Well, it would it would go back into the mantra of the bend don't break that we've done a really good job at between the twenties. We just need yep. to do a better job inside the 20. All right. Let's flip it over to the offense, Brian. And again, the version we've got to see, we did not break 30 last week, even with the defensive touchdowns, even with five scoring drives. 
five. We did not break 30. I don't think we can win this game in the 20s. No, we, we've got to at least get to 30, um, preferably mid-30s um, is, is probably where we're going to at least have to get against this um, pit team. And it's going to take a little bit of different things to get there. I think the first thing is that we need to run the ball somewhat effectively early in the game and then use that rushing attack to lengthen the game, limit the time that you're going to give Kenny Pickett to score. Um, And if your defense is doing what it should do, and that is occasionally forcing some field goals, then you're, you're, you're working with something there because you've shortened the game um, and you've, you've made it so that Kenny Pickett has to be, more perfect than he's used to being because he's not touching the ball very much. Exactly. Uh, the, the other thing we need to do is get Braxton comfortable in the short passing game and play action early. And that starts with that uh, rushing attack, man. Yeah. And, and right now we're, we're not running the ball good at all. We did get creative with Trey on a couple sweeps, a few plays like that, but overall our, our running game, less BB scrambling and getting great games we, we, we don't have an effective rushing attack. And, no. and, and, and and I don't know if it's – I mean, last week, quarterbacks ran the ball 17 times compared to 20 for multiple running backs. If we're this deep in a season and they haven't decided on who the two or three backs are and they brought Malachi up, the freshman, and I'm fine with that, but it's like we're – we can't get production. Raheem Blackshears looked like the best guy. I know it irritates you, Brian, that they still cannot use him correctly. Um, because essentially well, they're struggling to use him correctly because they, they end up having to use him as the primary lead bag in so many instances. That's true. Um, so, and, and I get that if, if he's your most effective guy, you've got to use him there, but it's just sad that we haven't found someone that is more effective between the tackles. And it's sad that our offensive line hasn't taken some of the strides I thought they would take. Because I thought the offensive line would be okay this year, especially in the run game. Um, and we, we have not seen that. Um, no. no, uh, you no. Know, we, we, we looked at a, you know pretty much a – I didn't think we'd see much drop-off in the interior. And I thought that the tackles that we had, at least in the run game, would be good enough to more or less be in the ballpark of last year just with a less dynamic rushing attack from the actual running back position. Because we knew we weren't getting a, a Herbert-type player at running back this year. We knew that. We knew that Blackshear has other abilities that are that are beneficial to the offense, but he wasn't going to put out the type of rushing yeah. attack in the outside zone and the running game as a whole that we, we saw from Herbert. But we haven't – I mean, the offensive line just has not played a – four quarter good game yet and we've seen seen flashes here and there we've seen quarters here and there but again they're not putting it together and and it it almost comes to a point you want to question Vance Vice of rotating guys where you're almost sitting there it's like when you have a successful quarter just like let that ride don't don't put back in Parker Clements because oh it's his turn it goes back to the old the old you know the pieces of well it's it's this guy's turn to run the ball well, the other guy just went, his last two drives had eight carries for 40 yards. I wouldn't take him out right now unless he was a breather. It's not even game flow specific either. Like that's, you know, if, if you get a lead on a team and you put in your, like a, a, a Caden Moore or, 
uh, a Silas at, at a certain position, guys that you know are more road graders uh, than they are necessarily elite pass protectors, then at least you know you're kind of catering to the, the game flow. Yeah. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is just kind of throwing guys out there to see what works. We're in, we're going in our sixth game of the year. Uh, this should have been figured out by now. And we've only had really one injury to dictate any sort of shuffling. And that was um, for one game. And, and that, that was, was for one game and Silas was back uh, against Notre right. Dame. So yeah. absolutely, f- figure out your best five and only sub if it is game flow specific. If we're if we're behind and we're we're dropping back a lot, absolutely get your best five pass protectors out there, mm-hmm. and you know vice versa. If we get up and we're trying to grind the game out, but don't just keep switching lineups every other uh, drive to see what's working. I mean, we we were either what up or close to close to uh, being up in pretty much the duration of the Notre Dame game. There was no, there was not a game flow situation where it said we should be subbing offensive linemen in and out. None, none whatsoever. And talk about all you talked about the offensive line in general, but, and I'm going to flip it back to passing game because we saw some elements of that short and mid range game last Saturday work that when, when we were actually driving the ball, that's where the successes were. And I know your big thing is get him comfortable, get him comfortable. But, Brian, you've also mentioned as much as we need to get that play action going, looking at the tape, we can't sit there and try to drive the ball 15 plays every time. We've got yeah, I mean, big ones. Yeah, and, and the way they, they go outside, it's very much similar to what Bud used to do. They, they are going to get up on you. It's going to be some man or some uh, kind of that – press cover three um they're gonna we're gonna have some opportunities to take some shots down the field and we need to take those there's gonna be one-on-one situations there's gonna be a couple of free free release situations we've got to not be afraid to press the ball downfield when they give it to us and we got to complete those passes all right so there's the version of what we feel like needs to happen for the Hokies to win and now it's our prediction time, Brian. Brian, last week you led, so I'm going to lead this week. And as much as I want to win this game, because the last game me and you went to at Lane Stadium was fit in 2019 in the 28-0 win, how Narduzzi has acted throughout his time at Pitt, he acts a lot of times like a petulant child on the sidelines. He's talking shit again about jumping oh, offside. He so he, he does, he does not believe karma exists, man. He – Three. Yeah, he jumped. Off, I mean, last time he said that they jumped off three times in that game. We were, it we were sitting there in a rain so lane. No, nah, it wasn't packed what out. It was. It was like uh, what fifty two. Yeah, yeah, somewhere 50, 52, 55, somewhere in that range. Yeah, it was. It was a rainy one. Um, and but, it, but I but I can't go with this, Brian. We're so inconsistent yeah. on offense. They have a good offense. Our defense is good. Is it elite? No. If it was elite, we'd have – I'd probably flip this. We have a good defense on an elite defense. Our offense is inconsistent. It's basically bottom third, bottom quarter of the entire country. And I think probably it's going to come down to just them getting one extra score. And I'm going 34-27. 
Yeah, and I, I'm pretty much right there with you in terms of the uh, point differential. I'm a little bit lower on both teams. I think our defense probably plays one of the better games, especially considering the competition this year. Um, I think the final is going to be 31-24 pit because I don't think that the offense does enough uh, on capitalizing on some of the shots we can take downfield. Yeah. Um, I think we do enough moving the football to get probably – at least three scoring drives um, in I don't there. Think it's gonna be, can I say this? I don't think it's going to be last year. No, no. It, it, I think it, the combination of this defense being better and it being in lane, I think that alone kind of puts this in a closer um, matchup than what we saw last year. Yeah. If, if you've told me this was in Heinz, I would, I would say I could go at least six to six to 10 points higher on the, yeah. on yeah. the uh, differential there. Too. But, uh, and I'll say this: If you ask us, well, what has to happen in this game for him to win? Well, consistency in offense, the scoring drives from last week we had. If we see that, eighty percent of the time we have a chance. But my my big one's going to be this: I think we have to be plus two turnover differential. Plus two in the turnover differential. We were plus it's two. Gonna, last it, it's it's going to be hard to force that. It's going to be hard to force okay. that. Um, Kenny Pickett doesn't turn the ball over very much. I think the opportunity we might have to get him to turn the ball over is probably going to be, you know, either one of those good breaks by by Jermaine or Armani uh, on the outside, or if we can get somebody into the backfield and get a you know a sack fumble. He is a he has a propensity to to when he gets sacked to let go of the ball, so maybe that can happen. All right, Brian, let's go ahead and take a look at the 10 additional games the Saturday pick them. Current record, Brian had a miserable weekend, goes two games Ugh. under. He's at 30 and 32. I had my best weekend of the year. I'm now four games over at 33 and 29, and I'm on a lead. Let's start Friday night in the ACC in the Dome, Brian. Syracuse, Clemson. Clemson is laying 13 and a half points. This isn't legal limit, but the way Clemson has played all year and the way yeah. Syracuse has played both on the road and at home, there I don't know what Vegas is on. And I know they build hotels every day because people bet it, but I cannot see Clemson probably wins the game outright, but it's going to be an absolute grind fest. But I'll give me cues, I'll take the 13 and a half points. I'm right with you. Um I think you've got Carrier Dome plus improved rushing attack plus above average defense for Syracuse. Yep. Uh, I think I think that's enough to keep this game under two touchdowns. Uh, just because I haven't seen enough from Clemson's offense to know that they're able to pull away from anybody. So yeah, give me and the over under and the over under is forty five, and you you split that out and take the thirteen away. That's at thirty two. They're saying this is going to be like Clemson 30, Syracuse 16. Yeah. Clemson 30? No. Clemson ain't getting to 30. <laughs> Clemson ain't getting to 30. They probably win the game 27-17. All right. Let's go to the 12-30 kick in the ACC, Brian. Duke goes to Charlottesville in UVA. UVA is the 11-point favorite. What say you on this one? Uh man, uh, Duke Duke did me some favors last week. Um, I'm 
give me UVA. All right. Give me UVA. I think they're going to be able to score enough points. I think Duke is going to be a little inconsistent on offense and probably not have enough on defense to compensate. That's about where I am, too. 69 the over-under total. Um, and they're saying Duke's going to score some points, but not enough points to keep with UVA, and I'm, I'm with them. I see it probably two-touchdown game, probably somewhere like 45-30. Yeah. Um, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood, but I'm, I'm taking UVA in this one too. We're essentially saying UVA's offense against Duke's defense is going to be more consistent than Duke's, uh, offense, Duke's against offense against UVA's defense, even though how bad UVA's defense is overall. Um, um, probably the over. The over would probably be a bet in this one because both the defenses aren't good. Both the defenses are easily giving up 30 a game um, on the field. All right, interesting matchup. Ranked North Carolina State goes up to Boston College. They are a three-point road favorite. Um, and, and and this is the one I've just been looking at since I laid these out on Tuesday, Brian. And I go back and forth. And as is, is, is good as NC State has played at times this year, they've also had some clunkers of games. And being on the road, this is going to be a uh, 7.30 night kick, Boston College 4-1. and one. I think I'm going to take the home dog here. I'm going to take BC. I don't know if BC wins the game, but I think it's going to be tight enough where BC is going to cover the three. Um, so I'm going to take BC. Oh, three. All right, I'm going to make up some ground on you here. I'm All going right. NC State. Um and I think that's going to be a, that's going to be a great environment uh, for that game, uh, but I will go with NC State here. I think they've got enough juice to pull it out. Um, probably just it, it's not it's still going to be close. It's probably going to be about a touchdown game, but I think it's more more than the three. All right, over under was uh, fifty two on that one. So if you're trying to add it in your head, all right, there let's take a look at the two biggest frauds. Oh, <laughs> Fraud alert. <clears throat> Two biggest frauds in the country. Miami travels to UNC for a 330 kick that somehow is still going to be on. Well, no, they moved it to ACC Network. I thought they were having it on ABC. But uh, North Carolina laying seven points on this one, Brian. What do you think between on this game? I'm going to go UNC, and it's solely because of the D.R. King news. And just I feel like that's going to be – deflating for that team overall. I think they're going to come out a little hungover. Um, and UNC is going to be able to jump on them enough early where that's going to carry throughout the game. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I think UNC wins this game, and I think UNC wins this game big. I don't think this is going to be like a tight game. Um, we saw how Miami at times with Derek King not on the field have struggled to score. Um UVA took them a while to get going against one of the worst defenses in the country. Um, they pretty much couldn't do anything against Michigan State. They got held under 20. And I know UNC does not have a great defense. But the way Miami's defense has just basically hemorrhaged points all year, I think this is like a 17-point game. I think Sam Howell slings it around. They win like 38-21. Um, give me Miami or give me UNC on that one. All right, Brian, let's go out of conference. 
kind of a big rank matchup of the day um, in the Big 12. Taking a look at High Noon, Texas, and Oklahoma State at Texas in Austin. Texas laying five and a half points after blowing the ungodly lead to Oklahoma and Caleb Williams last week. Where are you on this one? Man, I, I see this as a Texas hangover, man. Um, All right. I think I think Oklahoma State does enough to kind of shell shock them a little bit out the gate. Uh, I think they come out a little flat after last week, and they they probably fight back, but probably not enough to bring it bring it under that uh, that five and a half. So I'll take uh, Okie State here. All right, and I'm kind of with you on that. Okie State has played three very solid opponents in Boise, in Kansas State, and in Baylor, and they. Beat uh, the last two by double digits. I don't think the Texas crowd is going to have that big. I, I'm wondering how many people will even be there, especially after the loss last week. And getting five and a half points, I think, is enough to make that cover. So I'm going to go with you with Okie State. Um, and, uh, yeah. Now let's look at the second Big 12 game we've got on here. Two Big 12 games. We're actually looking to hopefully find fun offense where BYU, the ranked team, goes down to Baylor. And Baylor, the home unranked team, laying six and a half points. We're on this one, Brian. I know BYU just a few short weeks ago was inching towards the top 10. And after the after the loss to Boise by nine points in Provo, they somehow stayed in the top 20 at 19. And I like what Dave Aranda has got going on at Baylor. Um, really good defensive coach. The Okie State game was close. They lost by 10. Normally, you know, Gundy has a solid offense. And I think BYU is going to take another loss. And I think uh, – Maybe Justin Fuente is going to regret his decision not leaving. <laughs> ah, but uh, tie in, tie in. Give me Baylor. Lay the six and a half points. Uh, Baylor wins by seven. I'm going to go BYU here. Um, I think this is this is one of the ones I've been kind of waffling back and forth on, but I think this one comes down to the wire. Uh, I could see a field goal winning this game. Um, late, so I'll t- I'll take BYU here. All right, just a few more to pick. Let's go to Cincinnati and the Gus Malzahn UCF Golden Knights come into town to face Cincinnati. And have I you seen this line yet? I'm not sure. If yeah, it's one twenty one. Twenty one. I mean, I, I like Cincinnati and everything. I think Cincinnati is going to win this game. I think 21 is just way, way too much to lay. Because I, if anything, Malzahn, even against good defenses, has been known to manufacture points. Yep. I, I just think 21 is way, way too much. If it was like 17, I think I'd take uh, – I think I'd take Cincy, but three touchdowns. Give me, give me UCF and the points. I'm going to go with UCF as well. I, I I like Cincy a lot. I just think that's too much in a game that matters for both of these teams big time. Um, 
in terms of both big picture and conference. Um, so I'm going to take UCF. I think they keep it closer than the 21. Obviously, I still think it's a a pretty start to finish win for Cincy, but it's not one that ever gets out of hand. All right. All right. Next team we got here. There is no spread, Brian. The Pac-12 after dark. Pick them. Arizona State and Utah is a straight pick them. That line had been at like two and one and finally got down to a pick them a little earlier today. Um, what do you think on this one, Brian? You, you're going with the uh, the ranked team, the ranked Arizona Sun Devils at five and one or the home team Utah at three and two? I I kind of I'm leaning Arizona State, but something about going going into Utah is giving me pause. So, uh, you know, you play to win the game, so I'm going to go Arizona State. On Arizona State, all right, you play to win the game. <laughs> all right, well, Ron, I am going to completely flip this on you. Not so fast. Utah's two losses are to two ranked teams. They lost to BYU by nine, which we watched that game late. Yep. Essentially, Utah kind of, kind of pissed it away. And they lost to San Diego State out of the Mountain West, who is ranked 24 and undefeated. They lost them by two points. I really think that Utah, this is like a game where Kyle Winningham, it looks like he's going to lose and he wins every year. They've coming off a blowout win of USC, and then after in a win over Wazoo the week before, give me that home field. Give me Utah, um, straight up. All right, all right. Back to the SEC for the last two. The first one, as we've all been doing, keeping an eye on Hendon Hooker at Tennessee. He starts the gauntlet for him to see if the numbers are real or if just a competition of what it was. They go play Ole Miss. And, man, the first thing I noticed on this game, Brian, the over-under. You ready for it? Shoot it. The over-under this game is 82 and a half. Okay. I was going to say it's somewhere around 80, so I was I was right at the ballpark. Two and a half. The <laughs> spread is Ole Miss uh, laying two and a half points. Um, so they're saying this game is going to be over 40. Uh as much as I love Hendon and as much as I love Tennessee, um, I don't think they're going to be able to keep up with Kiffin's offense, with Matt Corral in that group. I think it's competitive. I, I really think looking at uh, Saturday night, um, that might be the game to watch of all the ranked teams. That game's going to kick at 730 and it's going to be an absolute shootout. I think Ole Miss wins 52-42, so I will take Ole Miss and lay the two points. All right. We're going to to differ here. I think Tennessee pulls this one out. Um, I think they have just enough on defense to keep Ole Miss from completely blowing their doors off. I think Hennon comes up with a little magic late. Uh, I think this is an outright win by Tennessee. It's going to come down to the wire, though. All right. Brian taking the two with the home team. We'll go Moneyline, Tennessee. (laughs) Oh, Moneyline, Tennessee. 
put as part of his uh gonna be part of your parlay this week. <laughs> um all right, last game is Kentucky, Georgia, big game of the day, two ranked teams. Kentucky number one in the country, and Georgia number excuse me, Kentucky eleven in the country. Um Mark Stoops has Georgia rolling. I told a buddy, my buddy Mike from work the other day, if Mark Stoops wants to after this season ends, any big position open, he could probably go get. He's 54 years old. He's been in the coaching game for 30 years. He's seen it all. He obviously um, – and he's been at Kentucky since – let me get it up. I think he's been at Kentucky since 13. Yeah. That's Mike Stoops. Mark Stoops. He's been at Kentucky since 13, and obviously what he's done in Kentucky is crazy. He's five games over 500 with that program in yep. the SEC with some 10-win seasons, some eight-win seasons. And obviously he was with his brother when they won a national title. Um, I think he can go wherever he wants. And in this game, Brian, the line is Georgia laying 23 points. What do you say? Yeah, I like Georgia a lot. I don't like them that much. (laughs) And I I think, you know, Kentucky has played some good football this year. And as you said, consistently, I mean, they've been – you know, say what you will about them historically, but Kentucky since 2013, since Mark Stoops has been there, has been a bet- better overall program than Virginia Tech. And they have. It, it's crazy to say that shit, but you know, it, it's true. Um, and I just, I think they keep it closer than than, than the 23 and a half, or what was the line? Was it 23? 24. 24. Three touchdowns. Yeah. Goal. I, I'm yeah, with I, you. I, I, I can't. I can't put that much out there. That, that's way too much, and I'm trying to see here if J2 Daniels is back this week. Um, give me a second here. I want to just see if maybe this is what's doing it. If you see something, Brian, I'm trying to get it here. All right. Even if he was back, I still couldn't lay 24 in his first game back. Give me Kentucky. Give me the all the points everything because I think that's just way too much. Stoops has a good enough defense. I think he'll keep it a ground fest. I think Georgia pulls away a little late, and it's probably like a 31-14 game, but nowhere near the 24 you're talking about. Brian, anything broken over the last hour and a half? I'm not seeing anything fun. <laughs> Everything looks pretty pretty low-key, man. All right, everything's low-key. All right, well, that'll wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner Podcast. I am Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Visit our website at BoundaryCornerBT.com to listen to all of our episodes. While you're there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Subscribe on our YouTube account and your favorite podcast source, including Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcasts. As always, we let our buddy Jason Long, who's down in Roanoke, play us in, play us out. Catch him on Spotify and Apple Music. We thank you for listening. And as always, let's go. Okies.